Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. Where do you get people to buy a fanzine in in Rochdale? Well, you don't really. (laughs) 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 That was the problem. It's the fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite, quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know? And, and that was, that is a fanzine, right? Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of the Fanzine Podcast. My name is Tony Fletcher. Once upon a time, I had a fanzine called Jamming. Now I don't, but I do have a podcast called The Fanzine Podcast, where we talk zines. I'm really happy to say that the last episode with Mickey Bereni and Claire Wad was the most popular yet. Um, didn't totally surprise me because I thought it was just an exceptionally good conversation. It was so much fun. And I'm really hoping that this episode is going to continue in that winning vein. It's features, as you may have seen, um, been downloading it or just prepping for it. It features James Brown and Mark Hodkinson. Uh, James, who I've known for a very, very long time, though actually not had a one-on-one conversation in decades. Mark Hodkinson, who I've gotten to know well more recently, as you'll hear in the interview that follows, and who I have sort of seen in person over recent years. Both uh, Mark and James ran fanzines back in the 80s. Both of them stayed in publishing. Mark Moore in books and James Moore in magazines. And uh, both of them have fantastic memoirs out right now about their lives in publishing. They will introduce those in just a moment. Now, the conversation did run really long. My uh, ideal of a one-hour interview just went out the window. After about an hour and 40 minutes, James realized he was meant to be picking up his kid from the playground. Uh, otherwise, we were, might still be on the call right now. It really, uh, it really, you know, we, we seemed to cover a lot of ground and enjoy what we were covering. So rather than freak you out with too long a show, what I've done is edited it down um, somewhat. This, this still runs uh, longer than usual. And I'm going to invite you, this is like killing two proverbial birds with one stone. I'm going to invite you to go over to tonyfletcher.substack.com. And that um, is going to be my new HQ headquarters homepage or whatever for all the kind of articles, blogs, um, opinion pieces like essays that I want to get out there, which I often do as a communicator and get away from the random algorithms of social media where you're never quite sure whether your writing is connecting with the people that you think would like to read it. It's also going to be a place I can keep everybody informed of new podcasts, books, writing, events, 
um, music, all the kinds of things that I'm involved in. And it's a very straightforward process. And I'm actually following quite a few great writers on Substack. So I'm hoping you will do the same with me. So just go over to tonyfletcher.substack.com. Sign on up. It's entirely free for a regular weekly article. There will be bonus features to come. And you can certainly um, support me and other writers in doing so. And the first article is going to drop uh, pretty much the day after this episode drops. Yeah, I'm a busy man. It's about my digital conversion. And the second uh, weekly article will include a um, this unedited or at least a long form podcast. So if you want to hear more, if you want to hear the bits we edited out, including the swear words and talking about uh, Weller and talking about selling out and different things, then again, the final time for now, tonyfletcher.substack.com. All right, I'm going to hand it over to the two of them, Mark and James. Take it away. I'll see you on the other side. I really hope you enjoy this. If you have to hit pause, just hit pause. Come on back to it because uh, there's a lot of good stuff said here. Cheers now. James, Mark, Mark, James, welcome, welcome. How are you both doing today? Yeah, good, great. Excellent. Good. It is, it's lovely, uh, really, really lovely to have you both on here. And I thought the best way, especially people can uh, start discerning the different voices, um, given that you are both from a similar part of the country, uh, I thought you could introduce yourselves per the fanzine that you had back in the 80s. And I want you to get a chance, and we'll come, come around to these later on, the book that you've uh, both got out, uh, you're, you're, both of, your, of you can tout a book that's only just come out in paperback, uh, so this is all well-timed, and which yep. uh, covers your fanzine days and covers your time in publishing and writing. Uh, just chronologically, I figure, Mark, you want to go first? Yeah, my fanzine was called Untermensch, and uh, only ran to actually four issues. I did that when I was about 16 years old. And my book is no one round. Here, I've still got a bloody read thing here. It's so long. <laughs> no, no one round here reads Tolstoy, memoirs of a working class reader, which is about my love of music, but mainly my love of books as well. Great, James. Uh, and um, I, I'm James and uh, James Brown, and I used to edit this this fanzine, Attack on Bazag, which I did ten issues of in the eighties, uh, based in Leeds, uh, West Yorkshire. And my current book is Animal House, which is out just now, which is about other fanzines that I edited that sold a few more copies and uh, the lifestyle that went with that. And there's I've also got Mark's book here, which is very good, which I finished reading this morning, the appendix. Oh, good lad. And then strangely, my dad rang me because I bought him it for his birthday. He rang me shortly afterwards and said how much he enjoyed it. Oh, that's brilliant, James. Thank so you're you. crossing generations of book readers. That's that's Thanks really, really good. That's really good to hear. Well, if we're going to do that, I can hold up both your books. Don't worry. I've got them. Uh, that one that one made a journey via my mother's um, retirement home. Uh, not really well. It's actually, unfortunately, it's uh, the, the care home where she's got dementia. Uh, as, as I think you know, James, because you signed the front of it. And uh, Mark, got yours here. And, Excellent. Uh, Mark, you also wrote a... Uh, you were interviewed for We Peaked at Paper, which I featured up at the top of this sort of new season where I've changed this from being a jamming podcast to that like fanzine podcast. And yeah. we also have the jamming book on hand because, uh, James, I've known you since back in the 80s and you wrote yeah. for jamming. 
And you wrote something very nice, actually, at the front of Animal House for me, which I really appreciate. Um, Mark, I've become friends with you quite recently, really. I think we always knew each other and we've gotten to know each other and we occasionally meet in York because you're still in Rochdale, aren't you? You live in Rochdale. Um, That's right, yeah. Yeah, but the two of you, I don't believe, um, have you met before? Well, no. James, has, you've been in touch over the years with the stuff I put out on Pomona, which is a small imprint that I ran for about 15 years, mainly about Barry Hines because we both share a love of Barry's work. Uh, James has been petitioning that we republish The Blinder, which was uh, Barry Hines' first book, but we couldn't get the rights to it, so it didn't go ahead in the end, disappointingly. Do you know what? I've got four copies of The Blinder, Blinder over there. Are they? Also, I was... you also see the two Hunter Davis books that you put out. Right, yeah, yeah. That's great that you've got that kind of appreciation going on, because I think, uh, you know, what's kind of interesting about the, the three of us have all stayed in some, you know, publishing writing. We've all had had books published. We've all continued doing some form of publishing ourselves. Uh, and I'm sure that it's like the fanzine ethos that's kind of kept us in there. But I want to kind of dig into that. Uh, you know, I can wear a, a, a sort of northern badge and a southern badge because I was born in Yorkshire, but obviously raised in London. And in more recent years, I spent you know, at least 50% of my time back home is in the north. Uh, and uh, having said that, Mark, I really don't believe I've come, gone to Rochdale. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating to me that you stayed in Rochdale throughout because, you know, James and I mm -hmm. sort of fled, fled the nest. Uh, you know, for, for me, it was London to New York. For James, it ended up being London. Uh, especially because when I was looking at the first issue of Untermensch that you sent through, it's kind of like a revolt against Rochdale in many ways. I mean, it's a sort of Rochdale wake up kind of zine. You want to, you want to talk much. us through what, what, what got you doing it? Like, like how easy it was to do a fanzine, where you even heard of fanzines, what ones you may, I, you might've seen. What you I've been thinking to... about this and it's almost dangerous, isn't it? To kind of supplant your adult thoughts onto childhood. And I don't think it was the music per se. I think you're right there that it was a kickback to the town and the people that were at school with. There were so few of us into anything that you'd term even vaguely cultural that we gravitated to one another. And then I noticed um, in James's book very early on, he mentions the phrase like-minded people. And in a place like Rochdale, you've really got to eat them out because they're just not around. You know, I went to a pretty rough, grim, comprehensive school, which I write about in the book, almost uh, Oliver Twist style. And it was, um, so the fanzine was basically an appeal to gather more people around us that were into the same kind of stuff. And it did work on that level. And I think that it's strange because quite a few of us have stayed the town. And it's, it's the struggle has almost defined us, even though it didn't feel like a struggle most of the time, but that, you know, trying to grasp and to, to move forward. And I've also, over the last few years, thought, why the hell didn't I move to London or somewhere, even to Manchester? But Rochdale is very near Manchester, so we went to lots of gigs in town and so on and viewed that as the place where we did find some kind of cosmopolitanism, I'd call it. But I think as a kid and even as an adult, I journeyed around my own head, and that sounds really corny, but books functioned mainly that way for me and music did. So I didn't for many years feel a great need to do so and I kind of brought the will to me anyway by publishing and uh, you know writing my own books and having my own record label and being in bands but I do now appreciate that things could have been a lot more straightforward and probably enjoyable if I had have moved elsewhere and done more about it but 
another thing that we're working against that was a really strong pull of family. You know, we're a close family, and it did feel um, it, it it would have been frowned upon. Not that that would have stopped me if I really wanted to do it, but it, it just felt absolutely normal and right to stay where I was from. I think that's that's did that sound defensive, lads? <laughs> I, no, not 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 at all. I, th- I I admire you for it. I admire you for flying the Rochdale flag. And in fact, uh, I mean, hopefully we'll get to this in a bit more later on. But I mean, I'll mention now you've written a couple of books about about Rochdale, who just uh, you know finished bottom of the league yet again. I mean, you you do champion. By that, I do mean bottom of ninety two clubs. You um you you know you stuck by your place. You stuck by your town. And uh, you know, I I I definitely admire that. Um, in, uh, you know, James, you well, you grew up in Leeds, which is you know presumably a little more cosmopolitan, and you had a little less to revolt against than uh, the Mark when you started the Zine, or not? Did you feel like maybe maybe not? Maybe you felt like you had to revolt against Leeds as well? No, I mean it's uncanny some of the similarities in Mark's life and in Mark's book and mine. And like I said, you know, my my dad who's just read his book as well said the same thing to me this morning. The the, 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 you know, the, the careers teacher has suggested that I become a printer. I mean, it's almost yeah. word for word the same conversation as Mark has with his careers teacher when he's 16. And, um, and, and, and you know, I always felt there were two things going on in Leeds. Once it didn't, it didn't feel like there was enough ambition about the city. You know, years later, I got married to a woman from Swansea. And when you walk out of the station at Swansea, there's in the quote from Dylan Thomas, you have to step on it to get into the city. And it just really? says, ambition is critical. But what's really instrument, what is really clear about it, it faces out. So it faces the people going into the station, not coming out of it. Mm. It's yeah. saying to people, you know, you've got to be ambitious. And, and I felt like that, that, that Leeds was quite restrictive. And then, and then the opposite of what Mark's just said is, there were there were significant difficulties for me in, in Leeds that made me want to go beyond the sort of you know the city you'd say the city boundaries. But um, one, my mum was incredibly ill on and off. Um, she had mental health issues, which now we can talk. I mean, now I'm fifty seven, I can talk about it. But also, there is a public dialogue about it. But when I was fifteen, there wasn't, and there was a lot of shame and uh, and upset. And she was a lovely person when she wasn't ill, but that was you know that that was a real driver that I felt uncomfortable with the world. And therefore I felt, well, I can't change my family. and I didn't want to change my mum. So I felt, you know, kind of meeting people like yourself and then, and then um, the guys at zigzag and, and, and then sort of at a, at a lesser level, all the fanzine writers from Glasgow to, 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 to London, to Liverpool and so on, you know, being able to go out and find other people that, that I felt were like me. Um, I just figured there were a lot more people like me in other parts of the country than there were in the city. And and I think much as, as people talk about probe records in Liverpool or um, rough trade in London, jumbo records in Leeds was where you might meet other people who were into fanzines or into the same gigs as you buying tickets for the gigs or just kind of when I was hanging out in there, you know, sometimes the staff would introduce me to other customers Um so uh, uh, very similar to Mark, you know, in that I just, I just wanted to, I wanted more than what was on offer, and I wanted to meet people that were into music as much as me and into the same sort of music as me, you know. Um, 
Leeds had a big goth scene. You know, it really was pretty much the start of goth in some ways. Yeah, I've always associated goth with Leeds. Always. Yeah. But it wasn't like, but it was also in a good way. You know, you went to the nightclubs, they'd be playing the Stooges and the Velvets and, you know, and the sort of the godfathers of, of, of punk and goth. Uh, and then, you know, the Sisters of Mercy emerged. I saw their first gig. So there were there were good goth bands there. But then beyond that, there was kind of just, there was a big sort of jazz funk scene, which was a club scene, which I wasn't into that. My girlfriend was. But, um, and then, you know, and then there was the sort of punk bands that came in and out and went on. And there was a great club called The Fan Club and another called Natural Disasters, a poet called Nick Topchek ran. So, so bands came in and out of the city but mainly there was just sort of a pub rock scene, you know, and people didn't want to do more than than play the big pub. And that, you know, that wasn't enough for me. You know, I, I, was, very, one... I was very excited when I got to play football for jamming. Yeah, you know, you, know, you were so excited you sent your mum a postcard, which you then sent me and said I could print it in the, uh, in the jamming compendium. Now, I think your excitement was actually that you were playing against the alarm, who were jamming. Genuinely... No, no, I didn't like the alarm, but I liked the fact that I was playing football with people that did a magazine like mine, albeit yeah. more advanced and glossier and more professional. That's that's what it was, and it was, you know, school people didn't understand what I was doing, you know. And I had maybe one other guy. I mean, one kid at school drew the cover once, and another another mate did a cartoon. But um, you know, the, the the world that I was in there was um, it just sort of lacked ambition, you know, and I. I saw the bigger picture quite early on. I just want to like, say... Money. There, were no, there were no... Economically, there were, there were literally no jobs. There were no, no. jobs. There, there were, were no few there. jobs, and I'm exaggerating. There were no jobs, so... Yeah. But, you know, I just... And I saw the NME, and I, I always thought there were fanzines, and there was jamming and zigzag, and then there was the enemy and sounds. And I kind of figured that's where I want to be, doing that. Those people right. are... Uh, from what I understand, Mark, you you put together Untermensch. It was the name of your band at the time, wasn't it? And it was your mates, like the very you found. Well, if I don't want to project on you, so maybe confirm, deny. It sounded like you had three or four friends that were similarly charged up, and that was it. That yeah. it was you were against Rochdale, so you you formed a band and you put out a fanzine of the same name. Is that roughly yeah. right? Can you walk us through yeah, that bit? That's correct. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. A lot else to do, really, because the you know they were kind of a uh, dancing around your handbag type nightclubs playing chart music, and really rough pubs. So you found yourself going around to mates' houses playing music. Then you find a guitar, you'd form a band, um, and and it, and it did you know th there was nothing else to do in the town. Another factor about also not being any jobs anywhere was the threat of nuclear annihilation. And I think we often forget that, that it did feel, uh, you know, two seconds to midnight or whatever it became. And it almost felt so inevitable, nuclear war, that enjoy it while you can, get on with it while you can. There's no jobs. We're all going to get blown up anyway. Um, so be what you want to be. Just going back to James, I think that he had much more pluck than I did. And and there's a bit in that when he's talking about selling the fanzines, how he loved all the interaction and, all the chatting and saw it as a challenge. I absolutely hated that bit of it. I loved every other factor, the creation of it, the ideas, the getting together, but it was the selling that was absolutely bloody hopeless. And I realised I'm kind of, I would have been James's wingman. I would have <laughs> elbowing him. There's someone over there who might buy it, get over there. I wouldn't have had that confidence to do that. And also, you know, 
looking at his career throughout the book, it's a similar thing. I would have never had that goal or that self-confidence. I have it now later on in life in a much more understated way. But I, I gravitated to lads like James because that was the missing part of me, the bit I couldn't become. Yeah, and that, that confidence that is written all over Attack on Bazag, James. It's, uh, it, it's you. It's, it's something I love. I mean, fanzines should, you should be able to pick them up and say, yeah, I know that person who wrote that. Um, and, uh, either you already know them or you're like, I think if I met them, they would be like their fanzine. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Attack on Bazag is, it's irreverent, it's funny, it's punky, it's political, uh, you know, and it's, and it's confident. And uh, James, for somebody who didn't fit in and was trying to find a world to fit in, what, you must have spent some time trying to just look back and go, where did that, where did that come from? If you, I, know uh, where it, I know where it came from, from playing football. I was, when I was a kid, I was good at football and I was very skinny and small, but I was a good player. So I always played with older kids. And um, whether it was in the school teams or at, or uh, you know, in the street, so I could hold my own with the bigger kids. But the only way you, you couldn't, I couldn't compete with them physically. So I had to compete with them verbally. And that basically just became the route into the press as well. You know, I, when I started writing letters to the enemy, slagging off what they were doing, that was just based on shouting at bigger kids, telling them to give me the ball because they were no good, you know? And, um, so that's where that came from. And that that really was, you know, my dad was pretty outspoken. There was, I'd get into trouble at school for swearing and they'd say, you know, do you talk like this at home? And my mind would go to home, you know, and that, uh, and yeah, that's that's how my dad would talk in, in, in the house. So um, I think that confidence, I think it just, I think that, I can't think of anywhere else where it came from. Um, other than that, just being a little kid playing football with bigger kids. And I don't mean like bigger kids in the same year. I mean like guys, you know, when I was in the third year at school, a couple of us were playing for the second 11, you know, against 18-year-olds. And um, and then the same, you know, just playing in the street with guys three, four years older than me. Good players, really good players. Guys who went to play for, for the city and stuff. So you had to get heard. Otherwise, you won't get passed. You won't get the ball passed to you. No. Right, I can no, understand no, that. I can understand it. I thought you might have answered actually. <clears throat> you got it from sugar because, from what I understand, <laughs> you grew oh, yeah. up. You were you were like uh, some sort of weird poster child for British sweets. Um, it sounds like you lived on a diet of uh, processed, um, yeah. processed sugar-heavy food. Yeah, but you know that's actually that's one of the bits of Animal House where I got something out of it personally because. I was writing this stuff about my childhood and about having what now is called uh, an eating disorder. And I said, why the fuck am I writing about this? But it was such a big thing. It instilled me with, with fear every day going into lunch. And it was the reason I was skinny. You know, the teachers, the sports teachers used to say, can you get some weight on you or get some muscle on you? And, and when I first said to them, why aren't you sending me for the trials? And they said, you're just so small. They're not going to just tell you now. The big, bigger kids just knocking you over. So um, so when I, was, when I was writing, I was thinking, why am I writing about this? And then I realised 
the problem I had with food early on and the fear of food and the inability to keep it down or the inability to even eat or try things meant I had a very unusual way of, of, of fueling myself. You know, in that when I got something I liked, well, I would get home from school. I don't want this to sound like the Hobies had, but I'd get 2p and go to the corner shop and they'd, they'd sell loaves of bread for 2p. And I'd go and cut this freshly baked loaf, cover it in jam and eat it all, and then have crisps and limeade. And that would be my food for the day. Yeah, I think that, that might, that, that, I think there may be something there that, that got either, either it was what your system was demanding or it was, um, it was helping fuel. But that, funny, but that affected later in life when I became, you know, uh, engrossed in drinking and taking mm -hmm. drugs in that I would approach the same thing in this, that in the same way. Yeah, I think that speaks to you know, things that are in our character early on. And, and yeah, definitely one thing that was in our characters was this uh, de desire, urge, need to get out of... Uh, you know, to do something with our lives, do something creative to, to not be just, you know, destined for an office job or, or destined for whatever the you know, society had planned for you. And you, you do write a lot about Attack on Bazag in Animal House. Mark, I went back to, um, uh, to Tolstoy, as I like to call it. No one around here reads, reads Tolstoy, which is such a brilliant title. And um, it seemed to me, unless I missed it, because I've got that chapter and we peeked at paper, so I've, I've heard you, like I've read you, talking about doing Untermensch and indeed another fanzine later. But it seems there's very little about the fanzine when I went back through the book. Did I, did I miss it or did you just kind of give it a fleeting reference? And if I did, no, in either no, way, didn't. talk us through it. The main theme was, you know, the kid from a house with one book, a growing up home with one book, having three and a half thousand. So the veering into my kind of music background was unexpected by the publisher, by the editor. So I think it was always a case, a bit of a trade-off, that I could put some of that in. But uh, as we've discussed before, Tony, one day I'd like to write a book more like James's, which is just about music and focused on that. So it was always um, a tributary, really, the music element, even though the, the fanzines did, you know, eventually lead to, to writing for newspapers and so on. But I think I was all... Because I, my background was such that the pragmatism was overbearing, really. So as soon as I had an interest and it was recognised by my parents and wider family, it wasn't going right for the enemy or do anything speculatively. I mean, they wouldn't have heard of the enemy at that point or, or even now. It was, oh, that means you've got to go and work for a local newspaper. That's what you do, you know, become a journalist. So I did, I did the NCTJ course, worked three or four years on a local paper, then an evening newspaper than writing for the Times. So it was, through all this, it's been a very conventional route. And I often wonder why, why did I, I enjoyed it, but it, it did mean that I wasn't the ultimate freelance or I became that much later on, whereby you can pick and choose jobs that you really like. I was also, uh, I, you know, I don't want to go on too much about my parents, but taught to defer. So if someone asked me to do something, I was flattered. So at 23, I'm writing a biography on Marianne Faithful. You know, it's completely out of my depth, but I'm just really chuffed that someone trusted me to take on a work like that and did it. You know, and I, I fell onto too much work like that. Almost this, got to pay the mortgage, got to follow this quite a, a small furrow. And when I moved away from it, you know, I was much happier for doing so. But again, it's a precarious existence and you're only as good as your last book. 
I really do want to go over this period of where you sit in your bedroom, cutting and pasting something yes. together and having to figure how to get it printed and whether or not you've, you know, I, I fitted in between the two of you though. I would go to a gig and sometimes I'd feel confident to sell. And sometimes if the first person said, no, I would just like, just not do it. So I always fitted in between like that. Let's, let's, let's talk about those, those, those experiences. I mean, in Rochdale, where do you find someone to print a fanzine in Rochdale is more to the point. And, but you know, I may have a very, cause I haven't been there. I may have like a dim view that you've helped sell me in your foot, your last book about, about Rochdale FC. Where do you get people to buy a fanzine in, in Rochdale? Well, you don't really. <laughs> <laughs> that was the problem. All right, so, so where do you get it printed? We, 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 got, we, we did it on the school duplicator. And yeah. although it was a really rough school, it had a kind of community department. And there was a fellow there that, uh, you know, it wasn't really his job to um, deal with kids like us and wanted to do punk fanzines, but... He was a bit of a hippie bloke, and uh, he let us do it, basically. And as long as we kept it aside from the school, that was fine by him. And it was on the old Gestetna, basically. So you type on that horrible kind of transparent, bluey, silvery paper that you, they had to do it on. So we would go to, to Manchester and sell it, or we'd do it mail order. And we, we used to promote gigs in Rochdale. I remember we brought, remember Flux of Pink Indians? Oh, yeah, my mate was in them. Yeah, really? yeah, one we of my best them. friends. Yeah. The trouble was that locals, and this sounds really patronising, but didn't know how to respond. There was no gig etiquette. So, because we were really into punk music and quite hard-edged punk music, there'd often be trouble. So you'd end up just being involved in fights or stopping fights all night. But we sold the fanzines at gigs or did it via mail order. You know, the stamp was everything, wasn't it? You know, again, reaching out to more and more people. You were also quite creative with it. What was the reasoning that on your first uh, zine, instead of, you know, you printed on A4 and instead of just folding it into A5, you folded it vertically. So it was this very long, narrow zine. Yeah. Yeah. Holding one up. I I love it. Crass crass and Hawkwind. That's a a great combo. Crass and Hawkwind. They they go together like, uh, I don't know, salt and vinegar, don't they? I can answer that question, Tony. I'm going to guess at that question. All right. What is it? Easier a staple down the middle. It, it was. Also, I think one thing that we shouldn't be shy of saying was that we all knew that ingenuity was, was important to get through, you know, through the mainstream and just to make people interested in it. So one of us had the idea to do it that shape, and it did work. But, of course, we had no pre-knowledge, really, of fanzines. And when I, when I look at Attack on Bazaar and I look at Untermensch, I always looks like a a parent-teachers association leaflet. You know, we had no idea on graphics and design. We just had all this information, all this anger, and we had to get it out. And it was only later that we realised, oh, these don't look like other people's fanzines. But obviously that doesn't matter, does it? it? It's the content that matters and the heart of it and the spirit of it. That what Another factor that I think all three of us share, and I've realised again as I've got older, is... We were, we were bloody relentless. Mm. We just wouldn't be told. And I don't, I don't even know where that comes from. You know, I don't know how to plot it. But even at 14, I wasn't going to be told. And that would I was, be a good book title. Sorry? That would be a good book title. He wouldn't be told. Or I wouldn't be told. <laughs> yeah. Or Re- bloody reaction- relentless. <laughs> being reactionary just was a natural being. And... Obviously, when I go to journalism college, I'm taught 
to question everything and source information and all the rest of it. But it was actually there from an innate level. And I, I, I don't know where it came from because um, as, I've, as I've written about in the book, it wasn't that kind of a, of a family. Nothing was really discussed. It was just you, you were fed and you were thrown out, basically. Right. In a nice way. In a nice way. Yeah, James, you have something in, in, in your book but um, which talks about that. But I want to I wanna tie it to Attack on, on, on Bazag. Um, when I was setting so, – so this interview will most likely come out after uh, another one. Uh, that I've just also just done. But even if it doesn't, when I contacted Mickey Berenyi, who most people know from Lush, but she, she and Emma ran a fanzine before they did Lush. And it was a good fanzine. Actually, it was very irreverent. It wasn't totally unlike an attack on Bazag in some ways. I basically wrote and said, you know, you may, may not know me. You may, may not remember jamming, but I'd love to get you and somebody else to, uh, to be on the podcast. And within 30 minutes, like literally, she sends back this email and says, um, is this you in the background of this picture I've take, I took at Brockwell Park in 1984 at some festival? Uh, Emma's in the front, and it looks like uh, James Brown is in the background, and I th I've always thought it was you talking to him. And uh, I want to confirm that you were very I know militant. exactly when that was. Yeah. The date of that photograph is in my book, because that is Brockwell Park, and it's a GLC free festival that Ken Livingston in his early glory days used to regularly put on. And Richard Edwards, who had a fanzine called Cool Notes and, an, and, a, and another one about Northern Soul Music called Out on the Floor, he, he did this fanzine stall. And he, myself, Steve Lamack, who's now on Six Music and had a fanzine called Apocalypse, and a couple of Davids from Coventry, who had a fanzine called Love and Molotov Cocktails or something like that. We manned the stall. And, but the reason I remember it was because Stephen Wells, Seething Wells, as he was known then, came up to me and said, have you been here all day? And I said, yeah. He said, I'm reviewing it for the NME and I've missed the first three bands. Would you review it? So I went back to Richard's that night and wrote about, I think it's Strawberry Switchblade, New Model Army, and the fall, and that was my first ever review in the NME. Oh wow! Uh, but there's also there's a couple more pictures that Richard and I have got from that from that day, and there's one that some maybe Mickey took it of, of Steve. There's two pictures of, of Steve and I talking to the police. How? Oh. And uh, there's one where I've got a megaphone, and there's another one where we're just chatting to the police. And I was I got to I got the police to buy some fanzines, which was quite good fun. <laughs> They just came over because I was harassing people in a funny way. <laughs> they wanted to see what was going on. But it was a whole scene, you know, and it was, um, that was, that was like, what Richard did was brilliant to do It that. was brilliant. It was, he, it he was brilliant. It, he did it about three places. I think. I remember him doing that one, but he also, he had one, I think, at that festival where the, the right wing, Skinheads attack the Redskins. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, so that was another GLC one that the Smiths headlined yeah. it was earlier that year, and I was at that as well. And the Smiths were yeah. just just unbelievable that day. The pandemonium yeah. was unbelievable. But Richard, to his credit, because he was on when I did this as a more of a jamming podcast, I did try and get you on, James. But I think you were very busy with your book, which is under yeah. writing it. Um, I had a really good conversation with him and with Janine Booth. 
um, who was one of the very few girls doing a fanzine back in the early 80s, and also my friend Tim Kelly, who was in Flux of Pink Indians. And uh, uh, Richard was really crucial in that. Richard also had the guts at that particular event at, uh, at, at County Hall to... Um, to get involved and and he ended up in uh he ended up like in a scene out of quadrophenia i think he ended up in the same hospital room as the people he'd been fighting with the right wing uh the nazi skinheads richard's a great person and what it gets to is you know jamming had gone monthly by that point so you know i don't know what conversation i'm having with you maybe maybe you're asking the right for jamming as well because you did um but there is a certain i sort of missed out and uh, and Mark, you sort of touched on how hard it was to get it going and your fanzine, you know, it is very earnest compared to Attack on Bizag, and I know what you're getting at, but you were earlier. And even though I thought initially, oh my God, I'm late doing a fanzine, there is a glory period in the mid 80s that, 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 it, that I think you were fortunate enough to be a part of, James, and you were, you were helping lead the charge where fanzines had, you had fanzine stalls, you had this incredible network that you're talking about. I heard you on another podcast where all the titles came back to you and you're yeah. welcome to run some of them off. Uh, so I wanted to talk about that as well. I don't think you were so much like this lone voice in the wilderness. You recognize that there was a whole- Loads of us. There were, there were loads of us. It was a genuine underground. And, um, you know, there were, I can, uh, as, you know, so many different names, Idiot Strength, Furious Apache, um ray gun uh new youth the end they were just there were there were, were masses of them but this this cover from attack on bazag which i love which issue is that number eight uh number six this number is six drawn, this is drawn by john langford that all was, right that was com that was commissioned for the front of the enemy they did a special on fanzines i think you might have been in that as well you might have been interviewed for that tony but I was interviewed for the NME. They did a big sort of five or six page feature on fanzines. And they asked John, who did my covers, and he did the covers for Swells's um, Molotov comics. And and they and they commissioned that. And, and John said, oh, that they don't want to use this. They're going to do something else. Do you want it? So that's why I put it on the front. And what they did was they went away and they got a copy of Attack on Bazaar and maybe one or two other fanzines. But there's loads of Attack on Bazaar. It's basically a copy of Attack on Bazaar ripped up and used in a traditional punk collage format all over the cover. And, uh, you know, at the same time, Billy Bragg asked me to go on the Oxford Road show he was presenting. And there was, you know, but it was a really big deal. You might not be aware that you're saying you're surprised that Mickey knew who you were. You know, like Mickey and Emma were my friends and... There were other people. There was Alistair uh, up in, uh, I think his fanzine was called Alternative Malium in, in Edinburgh, and Peter uh, and the guys with The End, and then Chris Donald with a biz in, in Newcastle, the, uh, and Swift Nick, John Robb. These were people that would let me stay with them when I'd go to see the Redskins or the Three Johns or Big Flame or somebody in their town. And and there was this, there was this whole underground community. But if Jamming did a review of your fanzine, uh, with the address in it and the price in it, uh, um, the following three weeks you'd get about twenty-five letters asking for to buy copies, and it was the same with John Peel. He was always brilliant at, 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 at encouraging people to buy fanzines, and those things made a difference because, as Mark said, is is if you didn't have anywhere to sell it, 
And even in a city like Leeds, it had a thriving, visiting underground hardcore punk scene, uh, but as well as a local scene. You might only have, you know, one or two or two or three gigs a month that you can go and sell it at. And if you've got a 600 fanzine sitting on your bedroom floor in piles of 30, the fact that one of those piles would disappear because Jamming had given it a review. I mean, I'm glad to know Jamming had that 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 impact. I, I became more aware of it when I um, did the book and people like yourself, James, were so gracious about it. And yeah, we printed. So you mentioned John Langford, who did that cover. And of the various pieces that you wrote for Jamming, um, there were only a few. And we reprinted the three John's piece. They were and... furious about that. Sorry? John yeah. Rattley was really angry about that piece oh. because he <laughs> jokingly said, he said, all the people on Enemy are bastards, especially Matt Snow. Yeah. And he said it like that. He was obviously joking. And I put it in like that. He was joking. But as is often the case nowadays with texts and the coldness of texts, the coldness of does not convey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe I should have said he jokingly says, but the thing <laughs> is, you write, you do write an accompanying piece. He shouldn't, he, so hopefully, John was just furious about it at the time. I'm not sure you meant about it being in the book because it's not like the books would be, you oh, cover not, it. He's got over it now. <laughs> right. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, because you cover it, you explain yourself in there. But there was a connection I was wanting to draw there with uh, John Langford and, uh, and the three Johns. Um, and it, it may be, I know that they were a band that you were, um, that you were very tight with, but something that I did know, I was looking, as you mentioned, you photographed some Attack on Bazags and sent them through. And um, I noticed that in that, here's what it was, that in that piece, you accused the Smiths of clogging up the independent charts. And uh, similarly, there's in one of your uh, issues that you sent through, you... Yeah. you a picture uh, of him. Yeah, you write about, um, you have this like back cover that really takes different people to task. And in fact, you say, this is the sort of famous back cover that takes people to task. And I think you say here, I'm going to quote you on this, actually. You say, heralded as the best new band of 84 by most music rags, the Smiths indeed are above average, but can hardly warrant comparison with any of the above bands fast being forgotten, which is bands that are broken up. Making jolly pop songs with thrilling riffs can only last for so long before the next factory hype comes along and knocks them off their indie throne. It, I, I, I know Mark's a big Smiths fan. I obviously wrote a book on them. It sounds like, like you really didn't like them. Oh, no, you know what it was? Was there was there was a mixture of things. First, I used to have, as I put in the book, I had I had this pass. A guy called Dave Goodman saw me selling my fanzines. He was the entertainment secretary at Leeds Uni, and he just said, "Do you want a pass to get into the gigs for free?" Because it was quite hard to get into Leeds University, and I think you, you, you had to be a member to go into the smaller gigs, a, a student to get in. So this guy gave me this pass, and I do remember a friend of mine at school, Natasha, saying. Hey, that pass, can I go and see that band, the Smiths? I was like, yeah, great, go for it. So had she not got taken that, I might have seen them and I may have, maybe I would have got what they were about. But I think if you remember when they started, they emerged at the same time as as, as Chris and, and, the, and the other two and the Redskins were wearing Red Harrington's tight Levi's and Dot Martin's and were making very speedy uh, kind of like, revolu you know, sort of revolutionary lyric, uh, you know, roof-themed, Kind of, I don't know what you would call the Redskins, like, you know, speedy punk soul or whatever. And that's, the, I love that. And I love the intensity of that. And and I love the fact that 
well, not just loved, but we, those of us on that side of the Pennines were, were very much aware of what was going on in the miners' strike. You know, that was the big thing, you know, endless benefits going down with my dad to the picket lines. Or oh, I remember being with the Three Johns in, a, you know, in the services, maybe somewhere like Leicester Forest or somewhere a bit further up, and just counting like 30 police vans going past yeah. in the middle of the night, heading to Orgreave or somewhere like that. So then suddenly this band comes along where the singer wears a hearing aid, which is affected. You're not sure if he needs his glasses or not. He's got a big old quiff. He's waving a bunch of flowers around and wearing a big old baggy Paisley shirt. To me, they look like hippies. And as you will know from, you've obviously closely looked at the thing. <laughs> I have very clear lines that I was thinking so, which I guess were quite naive. You know, it was about the naivety of youth, that it was all about good or bad. Even Jarvis calls his book recently, Good Pop, Bad Pop. And and that was it, really. I mean, once the first two singles came out, I had them. You know, they were, they were, were I kind of liked the music, but I kind of, and, that, and I've always felt, always largely, about, you know, there's times when, I, when I've seen the Smiths play and they've been absolutely brilliant. At, uh, when they did GMAX with Man in Manchester with um, the fall and new order on the 10th anniversary of the start of, of, of when punk landed in Manchester, that was an amazing gig. And I saw Morrissey's first solo gig, which was really moving, the, the adulation the fans had for him. And I interviewed him once. Um, but beyond that sort of, recognising when he's been good musically later in later after the fanzine years. I've always felt he's fake. You know, I think he's, he's, he's deeply affected. I think he's incredibly dishonest about various aspects of his life that he's um, projected opinions on that are dishonest to his fans. And, um, you know, so... I, I mean, Mark. Um, Mark. I want to. I want to let yeah. uh, Mark. Mark jump in on the Smiths because your <laughs> your own love of the Smiths extended with your uh, your later group uh, Monkey Run to doing a sort of sp sp spoof Smiths cover to your single, where you put a picture of Morrissey on the front cover, like the way he would put yeah. you know, black and white pictures of, of of soap opera stars or whatever uh, on on the cover. Uh, I don't know if it's about being the other side of the Pennines, but uh, I I know that that you're somebody who feels like they you know they were very important to the 1980s England, uh, which obviously James wouldn't disagree they were important, but but uh, you want a chance to uh, to speak up for that? <laughs> well, I loved the Redskins and Crass as well. I didn't, I didn't think it was, you know, one or the other. Um, I think the Smiths were always about the personal and the profound. Yeah. And, um, you know, it allowed working class lads to be a bit fey and dreamy. And I quite liked all that affectation. I saw that as confidence and gall. And it he, he, he was kind of born, fully formed the Smiths. It, it, the flowers, the, the paisley shirts, the hearing aid, the national health glasses, the whole lot. Um, the, the gig that you mentioned then, James, I went to Salford University the night before they played the GMAX. Yes. And it was um, one of the most intense experiences I think I've ever had. You know, it was... Yeah, they were brilliant at GMAX. That whole gig was probably the best gig I've ever been to, and they were absolutely amazing, you know. So I do stand corrected on how they develop musically. But look, but that's, part, that's part of being the fun of being a fanzine writer is you're young, you know, we're, by the nature of the fact that we're doing a fanzine, we, we are big mouths. And, you know, Mark, Mark may, <laughs> may talk about, like, not having the confidence to sell it, but it's our, it's our chance to be big mouth. We don't have an editor who says... I don't know if you're going to like looking back on that in 20 years. I think you shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't publish it. It's just nobody's no. stopping me. 
and uh and that's how you get in trouble even with the bands you like like you know the three johns or some of your mates you know oh you weren't meant to put that in oh sorry i didn't know um that is the joy of doing of doing a fanzine uh and listen actually talking about being quoted and stuff uh i just got quoted for an article in the guardian on the smiths and uh somehow somehow they took me talking about a period of great unemployment and put it in as being a period of great employment um oh which just sort of proves that even at the uh, at the very top level things can get can can uh can get misquoted i only heard about it because apparently apparently people are taking me to task for it as if i as if i thought it was a period of great employment and that would that one will bring me around to how political we all were with our fanzines yeah. and remained yeah. you know james you mentioned the miners strike and uh you know, I, I mean, I met you at these GLC festivals. I, I went and covered. It was actually a very powerful uh, event for me to go cover the miner strike and spend a, week, uh, a, a couple of nights staying with a striking miner. Um, and and that was the piece in many ways I was most proud of writing and jamming. It was it was quite late in the day. I think it was Christmas 84 that came out. Um, but 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 to talk about your own zines, um, Mark, the politics for you. Well, uh, one of the main themes at that time was crass and anarchy. And uh, I was doing A-levels and I did sociology. I think both crass and their philosophy and studying sociology, it felt like someone had lifted the top of my head off and just stirred it all up. And I knew at the time that I'd never be the same again because it basically revealed it was pulling the strings, how it was all set up. And I've everything I've done, I've I've done it, almost everything I've done, with that inner dialogue with my 16 or 17-year-old self, how would young Mark have dealt with this? What would he have thought about it? Because I think you mentioned the word earnest before. And I think at that age, and I was particularly earnest, you know, to the point of being humorless at times. Um, and it's, I think it's important that we do tap ourselves on the shoulder and think about, you know, is this... And I, I, quite often, I wish we hadn't have had that kind of, utter elucidation because it, it might have served us better to get on with stuff because if you belong and you believed in that punk ideal it made for a lot of internalizing and and worrying and and, and who the hell is that dialogue with most of the time it, it's it's almost um manufactured you know non-existent but once you've once you've had that that perception you're stuck with it and you you have to deal with it thereafter so yeah we were we were all incredibly political and it's been fascinating seeing how everyone's turned out and at what point the sellout came or didn't come and what happened to the people that did sell out and those that didn't, if you want to term it that way. I was a massive fan of the band called the Chameleons. I don't know if you remember mm. them. Yeah. And they were a um, big influence on me in terms of, I was always in and out of bands and one of the, one of the Chameleons produced the, the band that I was in. And they were a fascinating subject because in many ways they were very typical of bands in that the singer, Mark, was um, very steadfast, but also with an eye on the signed to Geffen at one point, you know, and, and the commercial world. And Dave Fielding, who was the main uh, songwriter, the, the guitar player, wasn't that way on and was everything was cursed with this, um, uh, you know, is this the sellout? Is this the point where we, we should have... Um... Sorry, you know James. What, you know, this idea of you selling out, it's like, it, it, to me, that felt like um, an attitude engendered by people who were scared to fucking sell out. Of course. And it's very much like that moment I write in a book about, do you get on the train or not? Does Billy Lyre get on the train or not? Or, But also it's like, 
it, it's something that, that that people talk to each other about in the working classes or in about the or or at the the fledgling, fledgling artistic community. It's anti-success. It's like yes. we can get on above ourselves. Oh, you want to do well for yourself. But I think when we talk about politics, you know, it was 14 quid a fortnight. You know, it was like oh, 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 signing on. And it, it really was. I mean, I really was hungry. I don't mean I was hungry for attention or success. Yeah. Hungry. You know, yeah, I've been I, through well, I, did, I did a book on the wedding present quite early on. And David Gedge said that they just lived off mashed potato for a month. And I said, oh, don't be daft, David. No one did that. And he said, actually, we did, because we wanted to press. Remember the single, um, Go Out and Get em, Boy, the debut single? They wanted to do a good job on it. They needed the finance for that. And they, they styled themselves so that they could do it. And no, I think America, that was... America, they don't have that attitude, I don't think. No, I mean, well, make... I, I definitely, you know, what, what what I loved about New York City, see, I felt that a lot, James, when uh, with with jamming, when it, it sort of got, successful and then it and then i was on the tube and it's like you know you're only meant to be doing the one thing i'd been in the band since i was 13, 11 12 13 i'd always just thought the band would come first and you know mark's been in a band and you've been in a band james and and i loved making music and and there was there was a certain amount of um uh yeah yeah <clears throat> I, I don't want this to be about me but it, it was awkward for me after jamming finished and some things sort of started falling up away and when I first stepped foot in New York City, I just realized that this was the place where people would just encourage you. And yeah. I always felt like if I'd stood in the middle of Times Square, well, actually, people do that now and tourists give them money. <clears throat> if I stood in the middle of Times Square, you know, as a, uh, as a naked cowboy singing country music songs with only underpants on wearing roller skates, people would go, good for you. Here's some, you know, we'll, we'll support you. Now, I, I, I mention that because there is somebody that does that for the tourists. But I was getting this off the East Village and so on, that people were just doing anything and nobody said you can't do this that's why why i fell in love with new york city and mm. i don't know that it's true across america i think it's the, the united states yeah. probably people flock to the big cities in the states um i know that you know atlanta couldn't contain people like rupaul they had to come to new york you know to to, to be comfortable even halfway comfortable so yeah. i don't want to i don't want to over glorify that but i think that 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 like keeping you in your place is the thing that that, that that we rebelled against. And I think every fanzine writer to some extent was rebelling against that. Yeah, I mean I was always throwing I was always throwing stones, but it was people over above me. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. the guy next to me who wants to be, you know, who wants to be successful. And and I think actually, you know, there's there's twice in your bookmark when you um which I, I really enjoyed reading. I thought it was fucking great. I really identified so much with the um you know, particularly about mainly in the first half and then the final bit where you talk about being a reader um, and your relationship with reading books. But twice you ask yourself why things haven't happened in the way other people have achieved things. One, when I think you're talking about the band, why has my band yeah. not achieved what that band there has? And, and then you also talk about it with David Keenan's memorial device book. Why did that get attention? But your book about a thing doesn't get attention. And I think the thing the thing that really struck me when when you started um, Pomona was you you said that you're inspired by the idea of, of creating a book, a publishing company that may in some way reflect 
the record companies you liked, and I think you mentioned um, for maybe Beggar's Banquet or Mute or Rough Trade or Factory. But you know yeah. the one thing, you know the one thing that all those record labels were brilliant at doing was disguising their big commercial act. With Pomona, you kind of needed, uh, you know, a local SAS sergeant who, who's got amazing stories that sells you 10,000 copies in advance of every issue coming out. And then that allows you to spend more time doing the books that sell two or 3,000, which you really care about. And the, I always uh, hoped that um, we would be taken on by a bigger publisher and then become like a, a boutique imprint so yeah. that we would be allowed to do that. But it, it never happened. And the um, the indifference shown to us, I mean, we did 30 books in the end, and yeah. it was indifference constantly. And I am someone that uh, I knock on a lot of doors. You know, I'll give it my best shot, almost to the point of making myself ill at times. It's something I've, I find it very difficult to walk away from anything that I really believe in. And it yeah. was like that with Pomona. But when I started falling out here and there with the authors, or being perceived as the bad guy, that's yeah. when I don't have a thick enough skin. I couldn't deal with that. But, you know, in a way, that, that reflected your, you know, in a way, this is come, it's about publishing. So, in a way, Pomona was a fanzine. Book. Oh, I've got a note. I've got a note to sort of say that, that, I mean, running a fanzine is hard enough. Running a small publishing company to publish other people's books and then yeah. having to deal with everything to put a book together that you didn't even write is taking a fanzine level to it, you know, taking fanzines to another level. So absolutely, let's talk about it. Yeah. But, yeah. You, know, you know the bit when you talk about the two different authors getting agents to come back at you uh, yeah. and take, the, take away the rights that you haven't really massively protected because you've simply given these people a chance. That in itself, although it was a deeply unpleasant and quite shocking process to read about, especially as it happened more than once, that is a reflection on your success as a publisher because you've taken somebody from nowhere, put them in a position, had the vision for what their book should be, and then somebody with much more commercial uh, experience has gone, oh, I'm going to exploit this situation. You know, and, That's and I, lovely, James. That's a lovely point to make, but when you've been six months working a book up and, and getting oh, yeah, it sorted terrible. out, it's absolutely, you know, it leaves you distraught. Um you know the end of Falling Down where the guy's on the pier and he says, uh, yeah. I'm the bad guy, I'm the bad guy. Occasionally I felt like that. You know, my my aim has always been, you know, very true and very fair with writers. You talk about agents, and uh, I have an agent now for my writing, but they seem to exist to stop um, works coming into print most of the time. You think, well, this... It, Sheila Delaney did a book called Sweetly Sings the Donkey. I don't know if you've, you've heard of it. And I was about a year trying to get the rights for that, knowing full well it would sell three or four. And you mentioned two or 3,000 copies there, James. We yeah. were sometimes lucky to sell two or 300 copies. But it's educational, wanted... you know. The book, the book's educated. Your book had two effects on me. One, it made me get rid of some books, which I'm having, <laughs> I'm having to do anyway. In, in a good way, right? You mean in a good way? <laughs> Well, yeah, I sent them to people who I felt would value them more than I had, having right. read them. I don't mean I wasn't shredding them or putting them in the, you know, in the bin. I, but I had, I, I kind of wanted to reduce. I'm moving house, as we mentioned, and I want to reduce some. I'm not getting rid of things I don't want, but the way that you talk about about books, about the value of the books and the importance of the books, is making me was helping me let go of things because you know if if. The reality is, if I had to take 20 books, 
I'd take 20 books and I'd, I'd have yeah. no, problem, no problem finding those 20 books, but it would mean leaving another thousand behind. But I could deal with that. But then the other thing was I actually had a conversation on Sunday about having my own book publishing company, mm. uh, which which an MD at a big publishers came to me about recently. And he said, one of the things we have to ask is, do you want to have your own company? Or do you want to have an imprint? And because I just read what you said, I said, I definitely don't want my own company. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what I want is uh, there was an imprint where you do all the printing, <laughs> the distribution, I'll deal with the marketing and I'll find the talent and I get a royalty. I mean, that's all I ever wanted from Loaded, you know. I well, mean, I was going to yeah. say, I wanted to say that with Loaded, you know, we've, we're, we're, it, it's obviously, there's so, so much we could we could touch on, uh, like so, so much. Uh, even just if, if it were just exclusively talking about Animal House, which is equally a, a, a great book. And of course, they're very, very different because your personalities are different and your life journeys <clears> are different. But they're both books that are mainly about publishing about writing about publishing and about uh, you know if not all yours more mark is about books and james was involved more with continuing to do magazines but i looked on loaded at the time um as being that james actually got somebody to pay for doing his ultimate fanzine like it, like <laughs> is that yeah right it was it was i mean alan mcgee at one point dismissively said it was a cross between a fanzine and, and penthouse, 70s penthouse, which was probably quite a good description of it. But one of the things we specifically, what I specifically did, Tony, was I wanted it to be positive. Mm. And I think you always had that in, in jamming. You oh, always, yeah. Oh, yeah. My, fan, yeah. my fanzine I describe here, one of my favourite bands, New Order, sounded like selling dog shit in a biscuit wrapper in that piece that you, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned uh, I should say I wrote that piece. That's from another fanzine that I wrote for. So I was deliberately writing in headlines, but and, and I just reprinted it after John Peel read it out. But um, the and I think the um, uh, oh god, what was I saying before that? Um, We're talking about Loaded being the ultimate fan. Your, your oh yeah, ultimate so fanzine. When I when I you know when I joined the NME, it's what I always wanted to do because it was the only thing in my late teens that I thought I could do. The only other thing I wanted to do was play for Leeds. And I knew, as I said, when I was eight, I was told that wasn't going to happen. I was too skinny uh, to even be considered. So so, the, so working for the enemy was the only thing I figured I could do. And so when I got a chance to do that, it, it actually took me away from the world. You two guys stayed in. And I sometimes wondered what would have happened if I'd been able to find a way to do my own business and build it up. Because I was, you know, Tuck Up Egg was like doubling and, and tripling every issue. It went from 200 to 4,000 copies in, in 10 issues. And uh, and I was selling all of them myself. No one else was. And um, But I went to work for somebody else. I went to work for IPC. And then, uh, and that was a kind of, a, it was kind of a different thing. And by the time I was at the end of the enemy, my mum had died, my mum was ill. And I was really frustrated that they weren't going to give me a chance to be the editor because I felt like I'd been the key person with the editor, Alan Lewis, who'd been responsible for, for building the sales. But the one thing that was really prevalent at the enemy, and I was as bad as anyone about this, was we were so fucking rude and cynical about people's attempts mm. to make good music. And, and, and that was something that was kind of passed down from Paul Morley and Julie Birchall and and Tony Parsons, this is the idea of being aggressive and, and rude and dismissive. But I was sick of it. 
And and, and so when I started loading, when I had the chance to start loading, which ironically came out of them asking me to come back and see if I'd do NME again and take over NME, um, I did, wanted everything to be like really positive. And we never we never had pieces slagging anyone off. We would just say, I would rather if somebody wanted to write a page about saying why they loved Fish Fingers or why they love Robert Crumb or why they, you know, eight pages on why they love Ozzy Osbourne, even though he wasn't hip at that point. I'd rather have that passion and positivity than than have somebody like myself had done and all and many of the other writers did as a default saying on the enemy, sneer about stuff. And then just before I left um loaded, this I pointed this to, I pointed this guy from the Melody Maker to be one of the commission editors, and it wasn't the right appointment. And the first piece he wrote was a half-page slagging off David Bowie's new album. And when it when I saw it, I kind of said it because it, it went into print, and it I said, um, you know, David, we don't do that. I'd rather that half page be about a brilliant new band or a DJ that's got a great club or, or you know a really great book or, or a film or something. I, I just want it to have this air of telling people about good things rather than telling people why we don't like stuff. And that in that respect was very much what was at the heart of. The fanzines. Let's tell people about music we think is great. You know, it's really so. interesting that point that um, you know you mentioned sneering and cynicism because that was very intimidating as someone that I would have loved to have written for the Inkies, but I was put off by. Uh, I, I viewed it as London centric, and um, I wouldn't be able to deal with the, the scrapping and the kind of the general mentality. Although I enjoyed the kind of uh, shoot of kind of what we now know as phony intellectualism through the enemy and the Inkies. There was always that tone that was off-putting. And I think I think it did put off a lot of good writers. And it's really heartening, without sounding patronising, that you saw that and got out of it. And Loaded was nothing like that. Because when I think of Loaded, I think of fun. And I also think, and we mustn't ever forget this, that your timing was absolutely perfect across so many levels, and he, and he identified this emerging market, fed it really well, and its success was no surprise. And, you know, James, there's a couple of things. I've, I'm glad I just went back to my notes. There's a couple of things that I've really got to squeeze in here, even if this goes over the hour. One is that um, it was really, I thought this was highly relevant. I read about it in a chapter that she wrote for another book about fanzines called Rip, Torn and Cut. And when I interviewed Mickey Berenyi from her old fanzine, Alphabet Soup, I also, because I love doing this as conversations, I got um, Claire Wadd, who eventually set up Sarah Records. And, and, and interestingly, Sarah Records occasionally did a factory, and instead of putting out a record, they put out a fanzine. And so she carried that fanzine vibe through. But she initially had a fanzine called Kavach, and she lived in Harrogate. And as she says in, in the interview that, that, that has probably been out before this one, um, she really got a, a leg up from, from you, James. You, you went and met her in Leeds and spent a whole day showing her how to do a fanzine. Or you may have even gone to Harrogate and spent a whole day showing her how to do a fanzine. And I think we've got to mention that. Yeah, I've done a lot of work in the community. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember that. I can remember coming off the train to the station. But I, you know what? I just, I was always, I was really appreciative of you and Mick uh, at Zigzag. Mick Mercer. Mick Mercer at Zigzag. And then Adrian Thrill, uh, Tony Stewart at Sounds. And, and then Adrian Thrill's coming to say to me, hey, we've got a job at the NME. 
And then Swell's saying the same thing, saying the enemy want you to be the next staff writer because I was writing about young British pop groups and also hip hop and some dance stuff, a real mixture of stuff, uh, uh, sounds. But when Adrian opened the door and said, no, it's serious, we want you to come in and, and be interviewed by the editor, they want, we want to give you the job, that changed my life. And that, that period was much more important to me than Loaded. If they hadn't done that, I think my life by the time I was 21 would have been like, you know, the end of Whipnail. And I'd, I have no concept at all what would have happened in my life. I didn't have any qualifications. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any contacts. You know, it's not like these people who call their dad's uncle and, and, and they go off and work as a junior in their company somewhere. Um so I was incredibly grateful for that. And, and then whether it was bands who would equally help me along the way, uh, giving me lifts and, and floors and, and guest list places and interviews, or whether it was those people that opened the door, I always wanted to, to do that. I always felt that, you know, in a way you keep what you have by giving it away to other people, uh, which is a phrase I've got for another walk of life that I've gone down. And um, it just seemed fair, you know, it seemed fair. And the irony is... For every time you're writing a review, slagging a band off, you're probably also spending 15 minutes on the phone saying that somebody's managed to get hold of you. Yeah, yeah, try that promoter there or or, or send something to that. Or have you thought about doing that? And it, it just, for me, it's just natural. That Those people didn't have to do that. You know, you didn't have to put my reviews, uh, you know, my two or three little interviews in jamming and, and Mick didn't have to encourage me. But that was... That, I mean, those things totally and utterly changed my life. And um, even though I had a lot of drive, I needed people to sort of open doors or, or at least not throw me out and kick the door in, you know. Mark, did you ever have someone like that in uh, with you who gave you that all-important encouragement when you needed it? I think probably a guy you know well, uh, Tony, Chris Charlesworth, uh, yeah. Omnibus. Yeah, um, so to glad be asked you mentioned young... Yeah, a really good fella. And um, I got the wedding present book because I think he was viewed as kind of fanzine and yeah. I was enthusiastic and from the north. That's but a great bit in your bookmark. That's a great bit when he gives you that that chance to do that. Yeah, it was really kind of him and really trusting. And I had a similar break with a couple of fellas at the Times and I punted a piece to them and they said, go on, write it. They liked it. And... Uh, invited me down the next week. You know, the kind of thing doesn't happen very often. So I'm going from Rochdale to meet the two guys at the sports desk at the Times, and then I end up writing for them for 25 years. And also, when you wrote stuff back then, copy was barely changed. It seemed a much higher trust factor. And now these days, whenever I go anywhere trying to play stuff, I know I'm going to be micromanaged. I know I'm going to be told how to write the piece. And I know they're going to probably change the intro and at the end of it, I might be been so pissed off with it that I feel like disowning it, where they seem to be, and I hate being that person that says what it was like in my day, <laughs> yeah. but 25 years ago, they were much more respectful of your own uh, new sense and also of the copy itself. You know, they would leave it unaltered. Um, so a fellow called David Chappell and Keith Blackmore, who were sports editor and assistant sports editor at the Times at that time, were so trusting. Another thing we talked about here was I've done a lot of football reporting and three, two really good gigs I got from the Times was 
a year spent with Manchester City where I did a piece every single week and a year spent with Barnsley Football Club where, and it would just be, they didn't even guide me. You know, I just, they knew I would see the chairman. They knew I would see the fans. They knew I'd, I was just trusted to do it. And it, and it's only retrospectively I realise how bloody fortunate I was. You know what, Mark? You were the original Trent Krim, weren't you? Who's Trent Krim? Oh, you got to know who Trent Krim is. <laughs> he's, the, he's the guy from the, uh, 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 nominally from the Independent in the first uh, two seasons of uh, Ted Lasso, who then, All right. who then leaves the Independent for season three and gets a uh, commission writing a book about, uh, about Ted Lasso and, and Richmond AFC. I am. I'm the original Trent Krim. Then. You are. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I spend, I've got to tell you, I mean, I, I spend a lot of the time, he's a very important character. And I spent a lot of this current uh, series or season, because they've got different words in Britain and America, uh, sort of thinking, really, you couldn't get access like that if you're setting this in the present day, which they are. But you, you actually did get that access, I guess. Doing Completely that. open That's door, a, yeah. It, at it was, City as well yeah. as Barnsley. At City, yeah. At that point, City were in the old League Division 3. Um, so it wasn't quite the phenomenon that it's become. But yeah, I had complete access to all the players. Um, I didn't even have to run stuff by the PR department. I mean, the PR department was one man, basically, at Manchester City at that point. Uh, I wanted to ask you something, James. Um, oh, no, I want to do the other story first, because I was originally, and you gave me the, the, the permission to do this, I was originally going to write this tale about you in my car. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was going to put that in the jamming book. And then I think you said at the same time, oh, I've written about this from, for, for this other memoir I'm doing. And you've subsequently told me you wrote two chapters about fanzines. So that may explain why the story didn't get in and, and jamming gets mentioned briefly because you're like, no, I wrote all about jamming. I want you to have the chance to tell it. It could have even be, it could have been coming back from playing against the alarm or it could have, could have been from when jamming played against the ranting poets who decided to go to the pub before the match, not afterwards. Um, but I gave you, cause see, I was the one who was daft enough to have a, have a flash car at the time. I gave you and Richard a lift across London from Wormwood yeah. Scrubs or, or from, uh, or, or from, um, uh, yeah, it was probably Wormwood Scrubs. And do you remember what happened? No, I think, um, it might've been coming back from the Sabelle center when we played the alarm. I know exactly what happened because for once I wasn't responsible. <laughs> You're sitting in the back of your car and you've gone in a shop or something. I went to put, put petrol in the car because you weren't volunteering to. Okay. Well, I probably, <laughs> don't, don't, well don't worry, I wasn't to, expecting To be fair, to... I think you've probably got to be 18 to put petrol in a car. I wasn't. <laughs> right. I was 17 and uh, Richard found your uh, contacts book sitting on the back and he opened it and we were amazed. It had like Elvis Costello's phone number, Paul Weller's phone number, uh, Billy Bragg's phone number. I mean, like, you know, Terry Hall's phone number, Jerry Dammers, Mike Peters, all the people that, you know, Ian McCullough, you had all their phone numbers. It wasn't, didn't say Zoo Records or, you know, what, you know, Stiff. It, it just had like Pete Townsend, 01484. <laughs> and Richard said, look at this. And he said, and like nowadays you just take photos of it. But I think, I think we started. Richard said, let's run, let's copy these down and we pieces of paper out. And that's what it, and you came back and you were annoyed. But ironically, I had exactly the same thing happen to me at Loaded when the production yeah. we did the production editor's girlfriend and her mate were in the office and pissed. 
which for me didn't really work. You know, on production week, you're kind of wanting to be doing the work and you don't really want people around. I was in the production office and I came back and I walked into my office. So on the phone of fucking Keanu Reeves's house. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd met Keanu when he was playing, you know, he was hanging out in, in Soho in some bars. I took him to some clubs and I had his number. I went over to see him in LA made a little film about his about his band and his time there and uh you know it, it was his number you know i mean i haven't rang it for a couple of years uh but you know he was still his number and there's these girls literally talking to his sister who, who he was staying with and i was thinking what the fuck is going on here so mm. let me, but that reminded me they'd found my phone book and looked through it and obviously there's, 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 if it says keanu it's not keanu uh, smith yeah, Smith or Bradford. It's obviously there's only one piano in the world. It's like if you've got Darth Vader's number. It's not Darth Vader from Dagenham. And uh, <laughs> so I did think about that at the time, thinking, oh, well, this has just come round. This is what Richard Edwards and I did. Uh, I was, so I, you know, I really blamed you all that time. I think I probably had a closer relationship with Richard. I don't know if he sold you down the river, <laughs> river on that oh, one. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I had some of those numbers. I had some of those numbers and I didn't have others, but the one that I really remember you coming back because I, I walked back, came back to the car, and you were literally going, "Leslie Ash, I'll have her phone number." <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was kind of annoyed because I was, uh, I was, I was genuinely giving you, giving you a lift back. But uh, it's interesting because Richard certainly, you know, he, he, uh, as I've already mentioned, he could uh, not just uh, talk the talk, but, but. He did walk the walk in uh, in various ways, but I think I always associated it with you because I I just remember thinking at that time like James is going to do all right, like anybody who's got the gall to do this is is he's going to do all right. Uh, he really is. Richard uh, and I saw Richard lives in near Leeds or Keithley or somewhere now, and uh, and he uh, does. And I and I, I saw I met up with him last year and we talked about that. And I said I think Tony thinks that was me, and he was just laughing. <laughs> It was Richard. Richard found it and he suggested it. But also, you know what, Tony? We didn't have mobiles. No. So we weren't able to ring any of those people. It's not like you were two drunken Irish girls sitting in an IPC office ringing Keanu Reeves saying, James Brown's given us your number. Right. Right. No, no. You'd have had to get up the next day and be, do I really want to call this person out there? <laughs> yeah. Do I really want to cold call Leslie Ash? Listen, I never called Leslie Ash. I just had had her number from. from you should have uh, done that. She yeah, was always yeah. calling you. No, I know she. I, I know I should have done, uh, but you know she had Rowan Atkinson in her life at that time. So what, you know, Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson, yeah. What Leslie Ash and Rowan Atkinson? Yeah, I know. Yep. I've got one final uh, uh, question for you, James, and then I, I do want to maybe just ask what we gleaned from our fanzines. Maybe the funniest moment of doing our fanzine or the most controversial. But it, you know, for all that I'm saying, that Loaded was your ultimate fanzine. Um, you wouldn't be able to do a loaded in 2023, would you? Like you in terms to. of in terms of like what would be acceptable and what would be considered, you know, unacceptable. Well, you, I mean, there was very little in loaded that was unacceptable. It was just done with such confidence and brash enthusiasm for, you know, the way we approach life. But if you go back in it, there's there's, there's not much in there that you you'd think, oh, you know. I mean, there's a there's a, probably an overuse of the word bird, and for me personally, I mean, my alcoholism was screaming out of every page. Um, but, you know, everything you can get in Loaded, you can get in a second now on by just using Google. 
if you want to know about a retro film like Get Carter, you can buy a poster or, or a screen print, or you can probably get a director's cut DVD or a Blu-ray, or just download it. And and uh, and I think there's just no need for it. Everything is available. I mean, that's obviously why magazines and newspapers in in anything that's printed on paper is 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 much less important and 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 has much smaller circulations because people do not need them anymore. And in the old days, people needed to pick up the newspaper to find out the football results. And they, they needed to pick up the the, the, the the evening paper to know what was on the television or and they needed to pick up the daily paper to see what the weather was going to be and, and or who'd won the general election or whatever. And they don't need anything like that anymore. Um, what was the circulation, James, at its highest? When I left, it was it was sold just over a third of a million. And that was 36 issues in. I did 36 issues. And actually, that was the point it was supposed to break even. It was supposed to make its first pound of profit after three years. And it made it after uh, three issues. And then it went on, rolled on over the next year and a half to sell about another uh, 150. I think it got to half a million. Um, That's incredible numbers. And and yeah, there were imitations up, down, left and right yeah, across the States, yeah. Maxim and all of those. F- yeah, F- we sold more. I mean, Maxim became the biggest selling magazine in America, not men's magazine, magazine. And I got approached twice about going over there and editing it. And I just do you, that. James, do you feel like, um, has anybody ever even actually asked you this? Do you feel like personally, uh, I don't know if the word is responsible or not, but for lads culture, do you think, where does no, did Loaded I mean, fit into that? It's just mental. It's just like such a bizarre idea that, what happened was I created a magazine for people who hadn't been catered before in the media, and it was a huge success. And it wasn't only a commercial success, it was also a critical success. The industry gave me plenty of awards, you know, for the three years I was there. Every awards evening, we got awards. I mean, I got every single award I you could did. get. You got Editor of the Year three years in a row, didn't you? Well, I got Editor of the Year with the PPA, then I got Editor of the Year with the BSME, and then I got the Editor's Editor of the Year, which is like the player's player. Um, so every year I got one of those two awards, and some years the magazine got Magazine of the Year. So, so you know, and the advertisers piled in. If it was the magazine it had been portrayed as subsequently, it would never have got any of that stuff. Because the women voting for those, the people voting for those awards were normally women editors. Um and, you know, so that I didn't invent rock concerts or gigs or pubs. I just put all of these great things that I was into in one magazine. I also want to uh, put this out to listeners that, I mean, I don't think anybody would have gotten through this far without having a sense of, of, of uh, James and your, your story. But it, it's, it, it, was, it, it would be possible to listen to some of this and think it's, it's a charmed life. Uh, yeah, we didn't. We haven't covered your mother's death. Um, we and Animal House talks about that, and um, of course your alcoholism and then the drug addiction that it got 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 to, and how you you know you've been twenty four years sober, I gather. Um, twenty five now. Like yeah, okay. <laughs> so you you ticked over since I, I, I last heard you give a number, and yeah, I'm very proud of you for that. And it's meant uh, there's been more a long journey. You've been else. on a sorry. <laughs> it's meant there's been more drink for everyone else to have. 
Yeah, I've kind of, no- I've <laughs> kind of noticed. Yeah, yeah, there's very few bars really truly run dry, but uh, that's one way of looking. Very generous of you, James. Me and my mate did once drink a plain dry. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've been on, I've been on a few. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on a few planes uh, in the past where I've, where I've wondered about that. But uh, now you've been through a lot, James, and you tell the story in Animal House with uh, great courage and honesty and compassion for everybody around you and while also sharing the fun. And uh, it's important to say that, really important to say that. And Mark, you know, we've both been able to talk about how much we admire. No one around here reads Tolstoy, which is also an incredible book. And both books deserve the success that they've got. Um, so we've run, we've run crazy long, but I think it's because we've been really enjoying this conversation. And I know we've all got things to do with parents. We've got to get on with our days. Uh, thank you very, very much, both of you, for your time. Thank you for your books, for your magazines, for everything you've done. And uh, being part of this show, I hope people got something out of it. Many thanks, Tony. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, guys. I, I, I mean, obviously, Jamming was a brilliant magazine, and I'm... It's been really good to talk about that era, and I really enjoyed reading Mark's book as well. And um, no one around here reads Tolstoy. It's it's a really really good book. Anyone who reads and loves books um, will, I think, really enjoy it. I've never read a book like that before. It's it's a book about reading books. I know it's great. Yeah, it's great. I must say as well about jamming. It was always viewed as the mother load, really, and the fact that if this kid can do this, and and we also saw it develop and becoming really colourful and improving every issue. It was a real important factor. And I'm not just saying that, Tony, I mean it. I've still got them, Tony. Good, good. I've got at least one of each. So so thanks again. It's been great talking about this era. Yeah, wonderful, (laughs) wonderful. Take care, both of you. See you later, guys. Bye. 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 Welcome back. And if you made it all the way through in one go, well, congratulations. But then again, we made it all the way through in one go. And that's not even the whole interview. Like I say, you can get the whole interview over at my new Substack. And I realized I didn't set up up front that James Brown is best known for running Loaded. You know, it's a fanzine podcast. So I just kind of wanted to promote the fanzines that everybody did. But of course, most of you would have known that already coming into the show if you know anything about fanzine culture and um, we talked about Loaded but we really didn't get to talk quite enough about James's book Animal House. I really appreciated that James had read Mark's book. I have read them both but I was only about halfway through Animal House by the time this interview crept up on us and I have finished it now and I've got to say, it's a stellar read. I had read James's previous book, Above Head Height, which is all about his lifelong love of playing football. Um, but Animal House, uh, the, the passion and energy runs all the way through it. It's evident that uh, James has got this kind of energy, regardless of, uh, you know, of <laughs> well, he's been a quarter century sober and he's still got it. it. It runs through the pages. It's incredibly honest. It's honest about fanzines. It's on about, honest about his life. Um, about his mother and uh, her, her, you know, the overdose that led to her death. It's honest about his faults. It's honest about the media's faults. It's honest about the fun they had with Loaded, the uh, toll it took on them all, um, about his period with GQ and about going into recovery as well. 
every time I've ever run into him, he's been positive and he still is. And uh, Mark is relentlessly positive in his own way as well. And uh, despite any doubts he may have had <laughs> about his path in life, he's uh, God, that's a great book as well. So, yeah, I know it was a bit of a mutual fan club. Excuse us. Deep, excuse us and no apologies. I did want to let you know about a couple of podcasts that I thought you might appreciate related to uh, the show you've just heard. One of them is the earlier episode of the Jamming Fanzine podcast, which featured Richard Edwards, uh, James's partner in crime, when they raided my Philo facts. And uh, Jane, uh, Richard's also a really good guy. That episode featured Janine Booth, and it also featured my friend Tim Kelly from the band Flux of Pink Indians, who... You may remember uh, Mark talked about putting on a show of theirs in Rochdale. That's a very good listen. And over on my other show, One Step Beyond, which is all about positively engaging with the world outside our door, um, I did an episode with Mike Peters. Now, that's Mike Peters of The Alarm. Um, they've been mentioned in the last two episodes of this fanzine podcast. And Mike um, has never been a critic's fave, and we know that much. Um, but he has an MBE for his efforts for setting up a charity, Love, Hope, Strength. Mike has fought a decades-long battle with leukemia. It's not one that ever seems to end. His own wife has been through her battles with breast cancer. Uh, but as well as fighting their own battles, uh, they set up this charity to ensure that uh, parts of the world that don't have access to cancer prevention, screening, or care could get it, including two countries that I've been to and love, Tanzania and Nepal. So Mike's MBE is well-earned, and I'd like you to listen to that to understand that uh, uh, I want you to understand that Mike's a really good person as well. It's just that simple. I got to see him in person for the first time in decades, just a few weeks before recording this episode when the alarm came to New York City and I really made a point of it and it was wonderful to reunite with him in person. And I'm sure it will be when I get to do that with James as well, which I hope is soon enough. And while we're on the subject of fanzines, uh, Hamish Ironside, who published that book called We Peaked at Paper, which is all about the British history, 50 years history, no, a complete history of British scenes, who was on episode 11 here um, with the guy he wrote the book with, Gavin Hogg. Um, Hamish has just put together a fanzine on a Gestetna. That's the same uh, piece of equipment, printing equipment that you've heard mentioned in quite a few of these episodes how we all got our early issues out. His is a Sparks fanzine. And the uh, day of me, literally, literally, the night I'm recording this, it's just arrived. It's called The Tacky Tiger. And it's I, I haven't been able to read it yet. But like I say, it's about the band Sparks. And I've got to say, it looks like one of those school fanzines. It looks like the first issue of Jamming, which was called In the City. And it makes me laugh. And Hamish just wanted to uh, see what it was like to go back and put a fanzine out on the Gestetner. We may have to get him back on and uh, see what he does think about it now. And the last thing I want to leave you with, I'm going to just circle this back around to um, where I'm now going to base all my work out of, uh, tonyfletcher.substack.com. Again, just want you to go there and sign up. You can certainly um, subscribe later down the line. But the article that's going to drop 
uh, pretty much the day after this podcast about my digital conversion. Talks a lot about the fact that I have got back into making music. James was in a band. Mark was in a band more seriously. My first band got as far as signing a major record deal and touring with the jam and having an indie hit and things fell apart. I've stayed in music all my life. I have continued playing here and there. In the last year, I got back to recording and uh, this article is going to be my thoughts about the recording and distribution process now but also actually I reached out to some other people my own age also working arguably on the margins but with some success on the margins about their own reasons and results and I just thought as a tease uh, my band as it stands which is me and my old bandmate from Apocalypse Tony Page we have a brand new single out it was recorded partly in my hometown of Kingston and partly in East Sussex, where Tony lives. It's called Blink of an Eye, and we are so, so, so happy with it. We've got a 13-year-old drummer, believe it or not, uh, my 18-year-old son, who wrote the theme and recorded and produced the theme music for this show, uh, plays on it and mix the record. So it's a massive uh, age range on there, which I just love. And um, I'm going to tease you by coming out of the instrumental section here and finishing off with the last verse and chorus. And the next episode will be up soon. It's one of either two things. It'll either be in a familiar vein or taking a massive left turn that I am really excited about. Either way, I hope you hit the subscribe buttons and uh, I hope you enjoy the readings to come and uh, all the newsletters to come from my Substack. Thanks to James and Mark again. Thanks to everybody who's ever been part of this show. Um, I will see you next time. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>